Hi, I'm Magnolia McKay, and you're listening to The Post-Purity Project, a podcast where we talk about life, love, and sex after purity culture. Purity culture is a way of life and a belief system that values virginity before marriage, which is perpetuated by church groups and religious organizations. It influences much of mainstream American culture, as evidenced by abstinence-only education in public schools, slut-shaming, and the push to dismantle Roe v. Wade. Of course, the value of maintaining premarital virginity is by no means exclusive to Christianity. But this podcast will be focusing on the unique purity subculture that has arisen from evangelical Christianity in the United States. In this, the first episode, you'll hear my story of growing up in a conservative Christian household, how that led me to get married at age 22, and how marriage inspired me to create this podcast and get a divorce. I feel like it's important for me to go first, partly to give you all an idea of who I am, but also as an act of good faith. In this podcast, I'm asking people about some of their most private experiences and feelings, and it's only fair that I'm willing to share that, too. Without further ado, here is my purity story. Some of my earliest memories involve sex or nudity, standing in the doorway of our home at age three, conscious that passersby could see me naked, or hiding in my friend's closet as we took turns taking off our underwear and revealing ourselves to each other. I can still remember the jolt of arousal I would get, followed by the fear that our mothers would find us. My experience of nudity or sexuality never existed without the immediate fear that I was doing something wrong. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, attending conservative evangelical churches. My family was very involved in the church community. Dad played guitar in the worship band, and Mom attended women's prayer groups. We went to church three times a week. At home, we prayed before each meal and recited the 23rd Psalm before bed every night. That's the one that starts with the famous line, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There were a minimum of five Bibles in my house one for each family member. When I was in third grade, my parents chose to homeschool me and my older sister, in part because they were concerned about the worldly influences of public school. When mom went to prayer group and left my sister and I home alone, we would turn on the TV and watch trashy daytime shows like Jerry Springer and Maury Povich. I was turned on when they had a stripper in a bikini as a guest. When mom's car pulled back up the driveway, We quickly changed the channel back to PBS and then turned the TV off and pretended to go back to our schoolwork. Around that time, my mom gave my sister the sex talk. I was so jealous. I wanted the talk too, but my mother said I had to wait until I was eight. I was full of curiosity though, and I asked the neighbor girl and she told me using naked Barbies for the demonstration. Those turned me on too. When my sister got her period, my mom finally gave me the talk, but it was focused on reproduction, and there was no mention of penises or vaginas. When middle school rolled around, I discovered masturbating. I hiked my underwear up to my hips, turned on by my own body. Then I would touch until I climaxed. This was around the same time that I was learning the True Love Waits curriculum at church. True Love Waits, as described by their sponsor, Lifeway Christian Resources, is a curriculum that helps students understand issues pertaining to sex and purity. They launched in 1993 and quickly moved through the Southern Baptist and Evangelical communities. 
The curriculum taught me that sex before marriage was immoral and impure, that my body was a temple of God designed for his glorification, and that it was a sin to sully this temple in any way. This meant not only abstaining from sexual intercourse, but also of any activities or materials that would lead to sexual thoughts or feelings. This included, but was not limited to, physical contact with the opposite sex, such as hand-holding or kissing, listening to music with sexually explicit lyrics, dancing in any way that was suggestive, using any pornographic material or masturbating, or watching sex scenes in movies. My parents made me close my eyes when these scenes arose. True Love Waits taught me to always keep in mind my future mate, that every kiss, every touch, every moan, and every sigh belonged to my future husband, that this future husband was going to be the fulfillment of all my sexual dreams, would be a gift from God, essentially Christianity's version of a Disney prince. In youth group, the pastor's wife told her purity story, how waiting for sex and taking each physical step slowly and intentionally was romantic, how each time they got to a new level, there were fireworks inside of her. At the end of the True Love Waits curriculum, students were prompted to sign a pledge card vowing to abstain from any sexual behavior until entering a biblical marriage relationship. There were True Love Waits rings, rallies, even a True Love Waits-themed Bible. In their first 10 years, True Love Waits boasted the 2.5 million pledge cards, or V-cards as I like to call them, had been signed. Mine was one of them. I was excited for Pledge Day. My youth group met in the chapel of the church, where weddings were usually held, for the purity ceremony. I had gone shopping with my parents for a purity ring, which was a material reminder of the pledge, to be worn on my left ring finger, like a wedding ring to Jesus. It later disintegrated in a hot tub. In the back of my True Love Waits handbook, there was a list of things that were considered sexual immorality. Masturbating was on the list. I struggled with it for years, touching myself in the shower. I would think things like, Dogs hump legs, and nobody's calling them sinners. Why is it wrong for me to do this? Until my eventual orgasm. Then I felt nothing but shame, and would swear that it was the last time. I eventually rallied enough willpower to quit it altogether. In high school, I had chronic crushes on mostly boys, but I never had a boyfriend. I was saving myself 100% for my future husband. I never even held hands. My repressed sexuality found funny ways of surfacing. I didn't listen to mainstream music, but I found myself lusting after the musicians in the Christian punk and metal bands I was into. At school, I didn't allow myself to have crushes on boys, so instead I just prayed for them. Like, every day. I also became obsessed with the idea of marriage. I took detailed notes on any sermon that gave instructions on how to have a successful, godly marriage. I was told that the model for a good marriage was 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is never prideful. It always forgives. Love never fails. I was told marriage will be hard, but it will be worth it. At age 17, I wrote an essay for fun about my desire to become marriageable. I argued that love is not merely a feeling, but a commitment shared between two people to grow together. Even now, on the other side of a divorce, I can't disagree with myself. 
But seriously, what 17-year-old is writing this kind of stuff? I had quit going to church at that point, and no longer claimed the term Christian, because I felt it was more of a social identifier than a belief system. But I was still devout to Jesus, writing every journal entry as a prayer to Him. I got involved with the local indie music scene in my hometown, where I found my people. Artists and musicians, folks who were less conventional, and that's where I found my husband. When he and I started dating, I felt like he was the answer to all of my prayers. I fell in love hard and fast. He was also from a conservative background, so it was easy to bond. I felt like I had found the other half of my heart. I was blissfully happy. My face hurt from smiling. We were engaged and moved in together within six months, then got married a year later at age 22. Our parents were unhappy that we moved in together, but all was forgiven after the wedding. Though we were sexual with each other early on, we waited until almost our wedding day for intercourse. I didn't feel guilty about it, because I knew he was my husband. I had waited for the one, so it seemed unimportant that we didn't wait for the day. I loved sex. I loved the closeness and affection that I felt between us. It was my new favorite thing. We read books and came up with ideas of new ways or places to get physical. My body said yes. I knew I would like sex, but I had no way of knowing just how much I would love it. Our honeymoon phase lasted three months. It ended one day when I walked in the door home early from work. He slammed the laptop closed and nervously greeted me. After a few minutes, he confessed to me that he had a porn habit. I struggle with how to tell this part of my story. On the one hand, I want to be as honest and detailed as possible. The whole point of this podcast is to talk about the things that are hidden and painful and taboo, so that folks listening don't have to feel so alone if they're going through the same things. On the other hand, my ex-husband has some right to privacy, and though we're not friends, I don't wish him any harm or embarrassment. Know that I've done my best to share the truth of my experience, as it pertains to me and my story, and that nothing shared is intended to talk shit on my ex. In the weeks and months that followed his confession, I struggled to cope with this new information. My husband is looking at other women. He's intentionally spending hours each week searching for pictures of other women's bodies for the purpose of turning him on and jerking off. What the fuck? If you weren't raised in purity culture, this probably sounds ridiculous. Sure, men watch porn. Big deal. But remember, I was taught that all sexuality belongs to your spouse. There's a verse in the Bible that says to look lustfully at a woman who is not your wife is the same as committing adultery. Any sexual thoughts, feelings, or actions outside of your husband or wife are like cheating on them. The porn topic triggered my low-level dissatisfaction that he had slept with his girlfriend before me. I was crushed. I felt betrayed. I was angry. Why didn't he save his virginity for me like I did for him? And why did he need to look at other women? Was I not enough? How could he do this if he loved me? My trust in him was broken. I was inconsolable. I called my mom in tears looking for comfort and wisdom. 
I told her how betrayed I felt about him having sex with his previous girlfriend. I didn't tell her about the porn. For that, I called an old church friend. She alluded to sharing my experience, but didn't open up about it. She said she'd send me a zine that her church made on the subject, but she never did. It's just as well. Purity culture did not prepare me for this. And at that point, I was far enough from Christianity that I didn't want their solutions. Be a good supportive wife. Pray for him. Do things to please him sexually. Help him find a prayer group and accountability partner so that he can break the addiction to porn. Nah, none of that was going to work for us. I sought out answers in feminism. I found some second-wave feminist writings that, unfortunately, sent me deeper into a rage against porn and suspicion of my husband. In the worst moments, I would interrogate him, look at his browser history, rant at him about how porn hurts women. I would cry and rage about how betrayed I felt. I'm not proud of that. In better moments, we tried to find solutions within our relationship. At one point, we did a sexy photo shoot where I was the model and he was the photographer. He snapped photos while I slowly undressed. When I was down to my bra and panties, he posed me on the couch. Here, arch your back like this, he said. I don't want to. It's not comfortable. I don't feel sexy doing that. How would you know what sexy looks like, he said. You never had sex before me. The photo shoot ended then, with me in tears, feeling completely invalidated. Was I incapable of turning my husband on? We went to couples counseling, but it didn't help. Around that time, I started volunteering for our local rape crisis center. During the training, they taught us about post-traumatic stress disorder. They put up a slide that described the symptoms, intrusive thoughts, hostility, social isolation, mistrust, and the causes, among them an earth-shattering revelation. It was like looking at a mirror. Okay, so I had PTSD. I still didn't know what to do about it. I loved my husband so much and was nowhere near giving up on the relationship. Marriage was supposed to be hard, right? So we just had to work harder to make it succeed. It wasn't all bad. We had friends over for dinner parties. We went on tour with his band. We moved to San Francisco with our kitten. I loved making our studio apartment into a home. But adjusting to life in San Francisco was difficult. At age 24, people looked at us cross-eyed when we said we were married. Why did you get married so young, they would say, with no attempt to hide the condescension in their voice. I would walk by an American Apparel ad that were so prevalent in that era that would send me into a PTSD episode. I could feel the panic creeping up my chest and neck, my mind racing with images of porn. I became obsessed with curing myself with having a happy, healthy relationship despite the difficulties we were having. I learned about somatic healing, a modality that uses physical experiencing to access the psychological past. I forgave him for his previous girlfriend. I repented from my anger. I compartmentalized the porn. I identified the misinformation from purity culture as a source of my pain, and I conceived of the idea for this podcast. 
Meanwhile, my husband was growing ever more aware that our peers were single and sowing their wild oats. He had an emotional affair, and the betrayal sent me back into my trauma response. I sought out counseling, but quit after she gently suggested that maybe this isn't the relationship for me. I wasn't ready to give up on my marriage. It was the most precious thing in the world to me. He was my best friend. Those years are somewhat of a jumble to me now. We played music together. I became aware of my attraction to women. After he repeated the emotional affair two years in a row, we started couples counseling again. His father died. I spent hours in the kitchen cooking gourmet meals from the weekly farm box we got. He spent hours writing and recording songs. We sought out individual counseling. He felt I wasn't pulling my weight in the relationship financially. I felt he wasn't contributing to the relationship emotionally. Our sex life dwindled, though my appetite grew. We were both deep in depression. We would go to parties and take turns being the designated driver. When I got drunk, we'd stay till 3 a.m., and I'd rage on the way home about how we weren't having enough sex. When he got drunk, he flirted with other women. It looked nothing like the marriage I had idolized as a girl. He was mean to me, too. Said really hurtful things about my body, about my character. In his eyes, I was fat, lazy, and unproductive. I didn't talk to anyone about the dysfunction and emotional abuse in my marriage. I didn't want to admit that it was happening. One night, about six months before the end of our marriage, we laid in bed awake after binging our usual three hours of TV. I sobbed. I'm dying inside. I could feel the part of me that was still alive. She was only the size of a kidney bean and was hidden somewhere near my stomach. Do something. Help me, she said. Our marriage finally ended when I gave him an ultimatum. See, he had a habit of playing the victim in the relationship. That this whole marriage thing was my idea, and that I had him trapped in it. That was his story. Anytime he complained of that, I would ask him if he wanted to end the relationship. No, he always said. He wanted to make it work. He couldn't live without me. He loved me. One January night, I'd had enough. I said, you either quit playing the victim and take an active role in our relationship, or don't, and it's over. He left the apartment, was going to go spend a week at his friend's house to think it over, but he was back in a matter of hours, telling me that he wanted to stay, wanted to work things out, couldn't live without me. So we had a blissful February. Our last night together, we went out to get ice cream. I put on a cute outfit and felt really good about myself. I suggested we stroll the neighborhood with our ice cream, but he said no. He just wanted to go home. I wanted to have sex and made eyes at him, but he just pouted. What, I said. What is it? Nothing, he said. I pressed him. And then it all came out like a waterfall. I feel like you're my sister, not my wife. This relationship feels like prison. I don't even believe in marriage. Oh. The answer came a month late, but there it was. I hit the roof. Okay, that's it. It's over. 
I slept alone in our loft bed. He slept on the couch, both of us crying separately in the same room in the dark of our studio apartment. That's probably the funniest and saddest thing, having to share that space in that moment. In the morning, he said, are we really doing this? You bet your ass we're doing this. I wrote an email to my friend saying I needed couches to sleep on until I found a new place. I left that afternoon, and we never slept under the same roof again. I called my parents and told them the news. My mom reminded me of my aunt, who's on her fourth marriage. How she once said she should have just stayed with the first guy. My dad suggested that we have a month of serious prayer before making any decisions. My mother came to visit two weeks later, and after seeing how truly heartbroken I was, neither of them suggested staying together again. In dating relationships, when one partner falls out of love, there's a breakup. In marriage, especially Christian marriage, it's expected that you push through the ebbs and flows of romantic love, developing a stronger, more Christ-like love to keep the relationship together. I can see now how strongly I believed in that ideal. I was going to love my husband till death do us part. I walked away from more than my husband that day. I had to abandon my belief that unconditional love will make a marriage work. I had to challenge my identity as a wife, an identity I'd glorified since I could remember, and notions of commitment, that marriage is forever and you have to make it work. I had to turn my back on the love them through it philosophy that was taught in my church and had to accept that love sometimes fails. Finally, I had to let go of my martyr complex. I would no longer compromise or sacrifice myself for the greater good of the relationship. It didn't work. After my divorce, I found a journal entry I had written around the time of the emotional affair. I was heartbroken and named the things that were so painful to me then. I cried as I read it, knowing that each one of those things would only get worse in the coming years. None of them better. I was so sorry that I had put myself through that. Why didn't I just end it then? I know I considered it. I have an email I'd written to my best friend telling her so. I also have an email from the same time from my ex-husband, saying that he wanted to be a better man, wanted to grow, and make the relationship work. The work of forgiving myself has been immense. On this side of divorce, I've done so much discovery, self-exploration, experimenting. I've had ecstasy as well as some really hard lessons. If a younger version of myself could see me now, I know she'd be shocked at the things I believe and do. Porn doesn't bother me anymore. I'm kinky and promiscuous. I don't believe in monogamy. I don't hate men. I'm not shy. I'm bisexual. Probably the most shocking thing is how little shame I feel about all of the above. Hell, I'm telling all of you about it. If I could time travel to a younger me, here's what I would tell her. Sexual feelings and curiosity are totally normal. There's no need for shame around sex or your body. You will have multiple soulmates. When you outgrow them, the relationship will change or disappear. This is not a reflection on your self-worth, but a reflection on your ever-changing needs. Trust yourself. Love yourself. Everyone is faking it and making it up as they go. 
be comfortable stating your needs and desires. If someone cannot accept them, they're not a good match. I pick my partners, not God. My body belongs to me. Love it, get comfortable in it. No part of my body, sexuality, or behavior belongs to anyone else. Not God, not another human. My marriage ended three and a half years ago, and only now have I gotten enough space from it to be able to tell this story. It's been years in the making. The best metaphor I have for my work on this podcast is a burned-down house. Every time I want to reflect on an aspect of my sexual path or my marriage, I have to go back into my burned-down house. It's painful because I see the broken promises and shattered dreams. The curly blonde-haired babies we'll never have, the music we won't make together. But now I have something I didn't have before. A deep knowledge and trust in myself, in my own intuition. A love for my body and the things that I do with it and an excitement for the future. In the coming episodes, you'll hear me interview my friends and acquaintances who are raised with similar purity teachings. I'm so grateful for their vulnerability and the opportunity to share in their healing. If you'd like to share your story, email me at postpurityproject at gmail.com. The Post Purity Project is created and produced by me, Magnolia McKay. Sound engineering from Eric Jonasson. Website and ENFP wrangling by Jana Busman. All music is from the 2009 album Triumph by Casey Burge.